This is a HeadGum Podcast. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you so much for joining me on the show again. This week, I want to talk about an experience that is both weird and weirdly common in 2023 in the past couple of years. You've probably seen it happen to someone around you. Maybe it was a roommate, a parent, a family friend, or for me, some comedians I started out with. Whoever it was, the story is the same. Someone who seemed sane with it and living in the same reality as you did suddenly lost their mind and went down some rabbit hole to emerge as a fully-blown conspiracy theorist. Now, people have been losing their shit like this from time immemorial. As I've covered before on this show and on Adam Ruins Everything, conspiratorial thinking follows from the normal patterns of human thought that we use to understand the world around us. But it seems that there's something particular and special about the way that people fall into the trap of conspiratorial thinking now. Whether it starts on 4chan or Fox News, anti-vax or QAnon, there's a mirror world of socially poisonous conspiracy that people keep falling into. It is incredibly painful when it happens to someone who you know and love, and it's often hard to know how to even understand what happened. What is it about our world, our media, and our politics today that makes this happen over and over again to reasonable people who we love and care about? Well, today I have a truly brilliant guest to help dig into this issue and into the entire mirror world that our politics and media ecosystem has become. But before we get into it, I just want to remind you that if you want to support this show, you can do so on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash Adam Conover. Five bucks a month gets you every episode of the show ad-free. You can hear all the wonderful interviews we do every single week, and you can support other people getting them as well. And by the way, if you like stand-up comedy, just want to remind you, I am a touring stand-up comedian. I just put a whole bunch of new dates up on my website. In 2024, I am heading to New York, Boston, Philly, D.C., Portland, Maine, a bunch of other places, Chicago, Nashville. Head to adamconover.net for tickets and tour dates. And now let's get to today's guest because she is incredible. She's one of the most respected and influential public intellectuals and nonfiction authors on the left of the past century. Her writings on consumerism, capitalism, and climate are required reading, and her most recent book is called Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World. I am, of course, talking about the incredible Naomi Klein, and her new book is a fascinating and personal look into the conspiratorial ways of thinking that are thriving in the moment we live in today. So without further ado, please welcome Naomi Klein. Naomi, thank you so much for being on the show. It's a complete thrill to have you. I'm very happy to be with you. Uh, your books, every time one comes out, they make waves every single time. This new one, I am so excited about having read the introduction in the first chapter. It's immediately gripping. You do something that is a form of thinking and communicating that is very close to my heart, always interesting to me, where you start from a fascinating personal story and you ladder out from that to a really wide-ranging discussion of the world that we live in today and some really fascinating intellectual issues. It's so cool. Uh, can, let's start from the starting point. The book's called Doppelganger. Please tell us about your doppelganger and how it led you on this investigation. Sure. Um, 
So I do have a doppelganger, um, by which I mean a person who I am perennially confused and conflated with. Lots of us have had this experience. I would say mine is more extreme than most. There is another Naomi nonfiction writer of books uh, who is close to my age. And I don't know, we're both Jewish. We're both named Naomi. um, And we both write books of sort of big ideas, I suppose. Um, and you're both cultural critics as well. Yeah. Like her first book, I'm referring to Naomi Wolf. And so lots of your listeners and viewers might not be familiar with her. She was, she was, she was big in the nineties. Um, she wrote a book called the beauty myth. She worked for Al Gore when he ran for president. Um, she was one of the most prominent feminists of her generation. So she used to be more on the, on the, on the liberal left. And now and this is why it became a little awkward for me to be confused with her. Now she pals around with Steve Bannon and Tucker Carlson and was <laughs> a real vector of medical misinformation during yeah. the COVID-19 pandemic. So I, um, you know, I, I use her as a case study of, you know, we all know people who changed a lot during COVID. We all know people who, who we've been, scratched our heads and gone like, what happened to that person? Right. Mm. Um, and maybe it's like a public figure, or maybe it's like a brother or a sister or a yoga instructor who suddenly is talking about QAnon. So, so yeah, so, so I use this personal, this experience of identity confusion because during the pandemic, I would go online and just, there would be thousands of people, um, really angry at me about things that I had <laughs> done, you know? Um, so I just, because yeah. they, because they saw a Naomi on TV saying something who looks, I mean, if you were next to each other, I could tell the difference, but if someone hasn't looked at you for a couple years and they see the other, Oh, brunette, et cetera, yeah. same age or et cetera. Um, I always say and- she has much better hair than me. Um, it's <laughs> really important to know. But so people are actually misattributing Naomi Wolf was out there saying sometimes horrible things. And they were saying, no, Naomi Klein said this and getting mad at you. Yeah. Like why is Naomi Klein saying that unvaccinated people have to stay away from vaccinated people because they might shed vaccine particles onto them and then not be able to have babies, uh, things oh. like that, which I, you know, so, you know, in the book, I use this identity confusion, which, you know, all of us who, you know, have something of a public platform. I think the pandemic had a particular kind of vertigo because we are used to being in rooms full of other people who help tell us who we are, right? Like the last thing, you know, I canceled a book tour, I canceled all these public events. And so I think that, um, I think we're generally we're confused about what our social media avatars are. Like, is that us? Mm. Um, is that really you? Um, you know, like it's, it's a, it's a sort of a approximation of you. Like it's, it's a character version of you. It's a branded version of you. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think that I didn't like being confused with her because she was saying a lot of strange and dangerous things during COVID. But I also think that I was very confused about who I was during COVID because I wasn't able to do the things that tell me who I am a lot of the time. Right. So Uh. I used it as this kind of portal to get into the the weirdness of how we are represented to the world through our avatars, whether we really believe that each other are real when we just see these avatar versions of one another. Um, And in a way Uh. that's like, like she is my doppelganger, but so is my Twitter avatar. Like that's not really me, whoever that person is performing me on Twitter. Um, so I think we live in a doppelganger world, especially with AI where we're not really sure who and what is real. And, right. and so she is a, you know, I guess a kind of a literary device to get at this hall of mirrors that is contemporary culture. And as soon as you start talking about that, the number of doppelgangers it like starts multiplying yes. in, in my head mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. Uh, you talk about, yeah, do you understand yourself? That Twitter avatar as part of you. There's these sort of strange loss of your own identity you feel when someone confuses you with another person. You know, when some, when some whenever someone says, that person looks like you, I'm like, that's what you think I look like? I, that's not what I think I look like. Like, it's, it's destabilizing just to be mistaken for yeah. another person. Yeah. Um, in fact, I was once told... I, I told, uh, this happened to me in comedy 10 years ago. I told a, a, a comic I ran into that she looked like another comic and she said, no, I don't. And then she said, you should never tell anyone that they look like another person because you don't know what the person you're talking to thinks they look like. 
You know, you, you don't know what their self-image is and you could be violating their self-image in a deep way. And I always took that to heart and I no longer do that. I no longer say, oh, you kind of look like this other person because you might be triggering some insecurity the person has or whatever. It, it can be very destabilizing to be compared to another person out there. But, you know, in the end, I decided to embrace it. Um, as huh. an unconventional form of, um, uh, you know, sort of Zen non-attachment, uh, because, you know, I, I, we live in a culture that is constantly telling us that we need to perform this perfected version of ourselves and optimize ourselves. And it's like, you know, it's a kind of our life raft in these extremely competitive waters. And, and there's something sort of liberating about realizing that no matter what, how carefully you tend to your personal brand and project yourself with the exact right caliber of irony and earnestness, um, if, if, if thousands of people think that you are somebody totally different, it really <laughs> is just telling you, like, get over yourself, you know? Um, and so I've, I've decided to be grateful for my doppelganger uh, and to take it as a message to just... Um, Find, find other people, find the others, uh, build, you know, invest in community, uh, not, not in personal perfection because people are going to think that you think wild things, no matter what you do. I feel like you've given us the, the beautiful conclusion of this book at the beginning <laughs> of the interview. So maybe we should bleep it for spoilers. I don't know. Uh, uh, that's, that's wonderful, but let's, let's keep exploring. Sure. Um, something else that you said that made me think is, you know, when our, our, our online avatars are those us, are people seeing us when they're looking at us? That makes me think that when people, you know, lose that screw like Naomi Wolf did, when, when the person goes QAnon, when they go anti-vax, when our friend starts behaving in this bizarre way and starts accusing us of being involved in a conspiracy or seeing those around them, it often or is so hurtful. Or being a doppelganger of yourself, like Stepford people and stuff. Yes. Yeah. Oh, you're not you anymore. No. And they, they turn it away on you. Well, that, well, the pain of that is often that we no longer feel seen by our friend. Mm -hmm. the, the person somehow loses their ability to see us and to see, uh, you know, when people are really going nuts on Twitter and accusing each other of being, you know, uh, whatever vaccine propagandists or whatever, they're not seeing the people they're talking to as people anymore. And we sort of, it seems like a, a very modern thing to lose our ability to see each other as human beings. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's, it's weird enough when it's somebody who you don't know, who clearly has you completely wrong. But what's weird, as you're saying, Adam, is like when it's somebody who does know you and is suddenly treating you like this, like entirely two-dimensional two form. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of relationships were severed during, during, during COVID because we were all yeah. really stressed out and we were, we were confused, we were anxious. And so people were disinvited from family dinners and, you know, often for good reasons, you know, they are immunocompromised and, um, you know, you like, like if you, if you had immunocompromised people in your family, then you, and you had somebody who was not taking COVID seriously at all, you know, that's going to create a rift and it created rifts in countless families. But, uh, I've also heard some really nice stories since the book came out of people who's, who, who, said that they reached back out to a sister they lost touch with or, you know, another family member and realized that, you know, they didn't want to have all these severed connections. And maybe there, there are some things that they agree on. Maybe, they, maybe, maybe you don't like big pharma either for different reasons, but you might be able to find some common ground and maybe pull them back from what I call the mirror world. Um, because, uh, yeah, there's often a, a like, you know, I, I, I write that conspiracy culture often gets the facts wrong, but the feelings right. And mm. there's a there's a way in which the, there's always a little bit of truth mixed in with the fantasy in any of the conspiracies. Um, so, you know, I, you've got to extend some kind of a bridge where you find maybe you find some common ground and give somebody an out because they might be looking for an out. There's a lot of grifters in there. The fact that you call it the mirror world is just, again, such an evocative image you found to, to uh, that really makes me think about it differently. Um, what, so let's talk about what is it do you think that pulls people into that mirror world? Yeah. Because it's happened with a lot of events. I saw it happen to friends of mine after 2016, after the pandemic. Um, you know, it seems like there are these inciting events and what is it that that causes this to happen to people 
So I think human beings are creatures of narrative. We like to have stories that that tell us uh, who we are and and where we are. And and when you have a shock, like a major event that 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 scrambles the story of who you thought you were, like nine eleven, like um, a lot of Americans had no idea who these people were. And that was, that was the question, like, why do they hate us? Like, what is this? Um, you know, we don't do a very good job of teaching uh, uh, people like geopolitics in high school, let alone university. So um, when it turns out that there's like people on the other side of the planet who are very angry at your country and you, they, you never learned why, like you never learned, you didn't even know they were there. Right. Yeah. Um, but after nine 11, I, I, I wrote a piece, I remember, I think it was for the LA Times saying, you know, uh, Americans woke up to realize they were, uh, th that they were at war only to find that they had been at war for a long time and no one told them, you know? Ah. Um, so, so I think th that we go looking for stories when, when, when our stories of self fall apart and, and, and w like, I don't know about you, but I've never lived through a global pandemic before. I've never been told to stay home for months before. Um, this was new terrain. I've never looked up at the sky and not seen planes, Times Square empty. I mean, these were shocking events. And yeah. so as creatures of story, we go looking for them. And I think what really derailed us during COVID is that that search for story intersected with an attention economy. And it's an economy that means that whoever has the most outrageous Overclaiming story wins the clicks, wins the eyeballs. You know, s science takes time. We were confronting a novel virus, and yet all these scientists saying, "Like, okay, be patient. We have to go do our research, and then we'll get back to you." And then you had a whole bunch of grifters just rush into that gap, saying, "We have the story. We know. Come over here." And you know, often they were dusting off theories that they had been using in different contexts, like the anti-vax movement, right? Like they had been spinning stories about childhood vaccines and autism, which were lies um, before COVID, but they just needed to kind of do a search and replace um, on the COVID vaccines and they were good to go. Like they didn't have to, yeah. you know, so, <laughs> anyway, so that's some of it. Why do you call, uh, where, how did you come up with the term the mirror world and, and why, why do you think of the conspiracy theory world as being a mirror? Well, I was struck, you know, so I, like I use my doppelganger as sort of my white rabbit, like an Alice in Wonderland to fall down the rabbit hole and really explore mm. the world that she is in now. Um, because it was either going to be like, just be horrified by everything she was saying or, or actually try to understand like how she could have changed so much. Um, and I'm a researcher and this is how I understand the world. Like, you know, when something confounds me, I try to understand it. And, um, so, so I started listening to a lot of the, the interviews she was doing with people like Steve Bannon. She was on his show almost every day for a while. So I listened to hundreds of hours of Steve Bannon's podcast, the war room. Um, wow. and you know, she was also on like many lesser known. D did you start to like the podcast after a while? Or were you like, okay, these are like my buddies. Now you get a parasocial relationship with Steve. Um, I didn't. Okay, I, I I admit that I got the, the his theme song stuck in my head um, for a while, which is like pretty catchy. It's a very weird anti-China theme theme song uh, that I won't try to sing right now. Um, but it does end with like, "Let's take down the CCP." Um, and I knew that's when I knew I was in trouble <laughs> when I just was like, couldn't get it out of my brain when I was, doing, you know, unloading the dishwasher. Um, so, so, but, but I like, I call it the mirror world because I was really struck, particularly listening to Bannon one time in, uh, it was, it was, I remember it's Christmas 2021 and he was shilling a new coin, um, called, um, FJB, like fuck Joe Biden. And, and he, uh -huh. he was just trying to fleece people before Christmas. He was like, get this for your relatives. And he was making this whole pitch about how you couldn't trust the dollar anymore. So you had to buy these coins and so on. This um, is cryptocurrency. It wasn't exact. It was even like, not even cryptocurrency. It was just like literally oh. a coin that said, fuck, oh, fuck Joe Biden. Like just, it. like just, we made a little, a, a little piece of metal disc that says FJB on, yeah, on it. Wh okay. Which is why I say you might be able to get some friends and family members back from the mirror world because there are so many grifters <laughs> there, right? 
that they might be looking for some kind of help. It's so they're getting fleeced nonstop, right? Um, right. You know, send that lifeline, see what happens. Um, but but as he was making his pitch, um, his pre-Christmas pitch, he was saying, you know, we need to have, this is why we need to have our own money and we need to have our own publishing companies and we need to have our own social media platforms because we will never cancel you. We will never other you. You'll always be welcome here. And so, it, and, it, and, and he was really talking about a one-to-one, like, you know, get cu- kicked off Twitter. You can join Getter, which they call themselves the, the Twitter killer. Um, you know, get kicked off YouTube. You can join Rumble and so on. And there was, there was it, like an exact mirror of everything like in the world that I lived in. And I was just really struck that most of the people who I know and hang out with have no idea this world like fully exists. Um, And they actually think that when somebody gets kicked off the social media, that the site that they're on, that they almost like have been deleted from planet earth. And it's so strangely (laughs) arrogant because actually they're really good at this and they are building massive platforms and they're reaching lots of people. Um, And uh, and that's, you know, that's why I pay attention to them. They're a major political force, you know, Steve Bannon's a strategist. Yeah, they, He's trying to get back and, into power. And these are happening on the public internet. They're not, it's not the dark web. It's like, you can just go to these websites and, and look at this stuff. Yeah. Um, how do you, uh, you know, I know you track Naomi Wolf's uh, progress through the book. How did she fall into this? Cause it's, it's a very, even if it weren't for the connection to you, it's a very strange story. Yeah, it's it's a strange story because she was such a prominent um, uh, liberal, such a prominent Democrat feminist. Um, How did she fall into it? Um, You know, I have I have an equation in the book that might be useful because I think there's a lot of people who have who have changed as we as discussed, um, which is social media slash grandiosity. Plus social media addiction, many of, I, I think pretty much anybody who we might be thinking of spends way too much time online. Um, yeah. and, um, plus midlife crisis, uh, divided by public shaming uh-huh. equals right-wing meltdown. So I want to talk a bit about the public <laughs> shaming piece of it, because I, you know, I think one of the big drivers for her is that she's one of these people who became a spectacle for liberal left Twitter. Uh, And that's because Mm. she made a foundational error in a book that she published in 2019. And this error was discovered live on BBC radio. It's every writer's worst nightmare. I mean, I, I, I sort of remember this as a viral moment and I didn't, I honestly did not really know who she was or really follow her that much, but I, I sort of remember this. What was the error that was discovered? So she wrote a book, um, called outrages. It came out you know, a few months before the pandemic. Um, and it was a, it was a, it was a historical work. It was actually her PhD thesis. And it told, um, it, it made it, what she, during this interview, she, she made this claim that gay men had been executed, um, for sodomy long after it was like, people thought that they stopped sentencing people to death for being gay. Mm. And what happened and the BBC interviewer pointed out that she had misread the historical record. And he said, like, in a very polite British way, like, it's just the thing is, is that I think you misunderstood. And then he explained that. And then the bottom falls out of her entire book. And she and it turns out that those men had actually been released. Um, She misunderstood a term called death recorded, which is which she thought was a death sentence, but it isn't. And uh, so that was just a journalist doing his job. You know, he fact checked yeah. a book that should have been fact checked by the author and the publisher and found a massive error. But then she becomes a meme, you know, then, then people just cannot get enough of this. Of, and, and of watching why, does she, it. why does she become a meme? Because the, you know, this sounds like an error is an error that's embarrassing. Maybe people have a little bit of fun, but there has to be something deeper going on for people to really go in on that. You know, I think not really. I mean, I think she was, she, she was enough of a, of a big deal. Um, you know, enough of a, you know, New York times bestselling author, um, that to watch this happen live on the air, 
it was just one of those moments where, because it would be your worst nightmare. And there's a lot of writers right. on Twitter, the idea that you could point and laugh at it happening to somebody else somehow made you feel safer. Um, Got it. And, but also she had been dabbling in conspiracy culture, you know, before that, you know, she had made, she did things like they took pictures of clouds and speculated about government, you know, um, yeah, it, you know, chemtrails yeah, and things, things like that. Like that. You know, yeah. she was a bit of a cloud truther. She's she, she, you know, she <laughs> just a little, just a little spot of cloud <laughs> truth. Just like you're hanging out with her and she might go, Hey, clouds are fake, you know? And you're like, Oh, well that was weird that Naomi just sort of tossed that on me. But other than that, she's pretty nice. Just a bit of a cloud truth <laughs> truther. I mean, I think she thinks birds are real. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, so, so, but because there was a little bit of a reservoir of annoyance with her already online because she was dabbling in other conspiracy theories. That's why people, part of why people really went in, it sounds like. Yeah. And then during COVID, I think she was, we were all bored and at home and she was like just endlessly sharing wild theories. Like, you know, like she, she'd come, you'd log online and, you know, she had like you know, almost 200,000 followers. You know, it's not like she's like, it, it didn't have reach. She has many more now. Um, but she, you know, she'd say that she thinks that children were losing the ability to smile because they were wearing masks, you know, and then that would be uh -huh. days of entertainment, things like that. Um, <laughs> you know, and there was a lot about vaccine shedding, uh, onto unvaccinated people. Um, and I mean, but, but I call her a conspiracy influencer, not a conspiracy theorist, because there are often mm. these glaring contradictions in the claims. Um, like, you know, for a while she was talking about how COVID was a bot, maybe had been cooked up as a bioweapon. Um, but then she was like, but why wear masks? You know, like, and it's just, it just seems like a bit of a contradiction there. Like, it, you know, if it's a bioweapon, surely you should try not to, um, not to get it, you know? Um, he's like, well, get, get. So, so she's an right, You should be worried about it. It contradicts the idea that it's not that big a deal. Yeah. So the, the, the story is constantly changing with whatever is going to get more clicks. So if everyone's supposed to get vaccinated, now the vaccines are a bioweapon. If, if everyone's supposed to get an app on their phone to see if they got vaccinated, well, it's not about the vaccine. It's the app. The app can listen to your phone conversations and things like that. But this is what I mean about how they often get um, the feeling right and the facts wrong is that, yeah. you know, that's where she really took a star turn on the right was when she started talking about those vaccine verification apps being a covert surveillance um, uh, um, plan. So the truth is like, like people are very anxious about surveillance. They're very anxious about what happens with their data. They're anxious about their cell phones. They're, they don't really under, we don't really understand, you know, what is known about our movements, you know, and so she projected all of our collective surveillance fears onto this one app. But the response on liberal Twitter was, wait till they hear about cell phones, which is kind of funny, right? But it's, <laughs> but the assumption behind that joke is that we all know that our cell phones are listening to us and we're okay with it. But the thing is, people seem not to be okay with it, right? Right. So this is part of the appeal of conspiracy culture is that you know, they're telling a very simple story. Like if we can just get rid of these apps, then everything will be fine and nobody will be able to track you anymore. Right. Or the vaccines or whatever is being, is, is the kind of boogeyman of surveillance. Whereas we actually need policy responses so that we can control these tech companies and they're not able to mine our data endlessly and create more doppelgangers like AI versions of us and so on. Right. The story with a grain of truth, but with a much simpler solution and you can yeah. apply it to almost anything. Um, uh, now often when someone is a conspiracy influencer like this, there'll be this implication that people will say, oh, they're a grifter and a grifter generally means someone who doesn't believe anything that they say. They're just trying to get the clicks. They're harvesting clicks. They're like following the audience. Did you feel that that was the case in her case? Is she, was she a complete cynic about it? Or do you think she was believing these things and was just not able to sort of connect the dots that they were self-contradictory? It, it's very hard for me I, to know what she believes. Right. And I, I think that a, a lot of people who really go all in with conspiracy culture aren't completely cynical. They have to convince themselves of some of it on some level. Um, 
but I, but, but that doesn't mean that the primary impulse isn't grifting, isn't ego, isn't getting people to treat you like a savant or whatever. Um, I think she gets a lot out of this, I guess is what I'm saying. I think she lost a lot on, on, in the world that she used to, you know, travel in. She could no longer get published, you know, after that error on BBC, her publisher dropped her, dumped, Helped her book. So she had every reason to move to a new market um, that is very large, that has, you know, I, Tucker Carlson, when he had her on Fox, he was getting, you know, 3 million viewers a night, you know? Um, there's no show on the left that she had access that could to that could go near that, right? So there's, there's every reason. Um, so I don't know what she believes, but I do know that a lot of people who follow this are not just grifting, right? Like, like the only reason the grift is successful, if it's a grift, is because there are lots of customers who sincerely are listening to Steve Bannon and Naomi Wolf and RFK Jr. and believe it, um, or else it's not a good grift. You don't have customers. So it's worrying because they're using such apocalyptic language. Um, yeah. And, you know, if you really are in this battle for humanity against a genocide, you know, that's the kind of language that she uses, um, good and evil, like, you know, she's claimed that there is a genocide that has happened because of these vaccines. Um, I think that it, and, you know, she also takes pictures of her new gun and says we're at war and posts pictures of her husband doing target practice. So like, this is, this doesn't end well, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, I mean, if you're telling people they are fighting a genocide for good and evil, I think, um, you know, they might take you at your word, whether you're grifting or not, and they might yeah. decide to do something about it. And we're seeing lots of examples of that, actually. We absolutely are. Uh, well, we have to take a really quick break. When we come back, I want to ask you more about how this has changed your own interaction with your online identity, but we, we'll be right back with more Naomi Klein. As a factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show. I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe. But approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you want to safeguard yourself like that and live with a peace of mind, that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com Adam. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Okay, we're back with Naomi Klein talking about online conspiracy theories, the mirror world, doppelgangers. Uh, you had this really intriguing idea at the top of the interview about how it made you think about how your own online identity is in some ways a doppelganger. Can you please get into that for us? So I think when we create an online version of ourselves, when we choose the picture that's going to be our avatar, when we write that sort of like kind of satirical bio, like we are like we're, we are creating a brand, you know, uh, and what is a brand? A brand is a thing version of you, 
of me. Yeah. Uh, and you know, th- this is actually the, the first book I wrote when I was in my twenties was a book called No Logo. Um, and it was about the rise of this idea that companies should first and foremost be selling an idea a brand, not that the product was incidental, which was an idea that Mm -hmm. took root in corporate culture in the nineties, but also that individual celebrities, like, you know, the first person who called himself, uh, whose agent called him a super brand was Michael Jordan. And he was, you know, he was a, he he was a, he was a mega corporation. Uh, and you know, there were others, there was Richard Branson and, and Oprah, of course. Um, but the idea that regular people could be brands was not possible it, you know at that stage um even though there were kind of management consultants saying this is the future and you know you're not going to get a job you're you're just going to have a series of contracts but if you really want to get ahead you need to create a brand and so um you know that that didn't become a reality until social media put advertising agencies into all of our back pockets right um, yes. because suddenly you you too can do this for free like for the for the price of for the for the price of your phone um and the you know what i'm trying to do in the book is you know look at it with a little bit of 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 distance because i think people are, are you know are often called out for being performative and and you know um being inauthentic online and so on and this is like the 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 ultimate uh, smear is like you, 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 you're just performing, but we're all just performing. And the reason yes. we're doing it is because we have all received this message that the perfected performed self, the brand itself is really our only hope of survival in these, you know, incredibly competitive, um, shark fest laden waters. Um, so, yeah, I think we should treat ourselves with a little bit of compassion and thinking about why we build these doppelgangers of ourselves. But a brand is a thing. Like humans are not meant to be brands. Um, we've, mm. we've accepted the logic and we're all doing it. And that's why we think we all need to issue like press statements whenever anything terrible happens in the world, you know? Right. <laughs> that, that, uh, that is where I went as well, yeah. because there's a lot of that happening right yeah. now yeah. with people saying, you need to post about this. You need to post. You need to speak up. And it's at that moment that the distance you don't, between. By the way, do you don't. <laughs> thank you. I agree. I don't think anyone can force you to post. And I don't think that posting is good by itself. Posting no. can be something, and but it's not. People will try to shame you into it. Your silence is its own statement and so on. And they're just performing themselves. Like that version, that wh- whoever those people are who yes. are calling you out for not having issued a, you know, like a, a, a press statement about the Middle East, you know, um, like unless you are a politician, unless you are a, a, a public person with some kind of record, you don't owe that to the world. You, you I think you should yeah. read, you should become um, you, you literate about, about the, these issues that are going to impact all of us. Um, but if this is not your area, you do not owe anybody, um, that sort of us versus them performance. Correct. And, and I, I felt that really strongly, well, it made me think about the distance between my brand and my, and my, uh, personal self, because I post, uh, I have a large social media presence. There are things that I post about a lot, What I don't post about international affairs. That's not part of my brand. Now, as a person, I have a responsibility, right? To check in on my friends who are affected, to learn as much as I can, to try to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a big, there's a big gap there. And I really was really feeling the gap over those, those last couple of weeks. Yeah. And I think people feel, you know, you start to feel like somebody's keeping track. Like there's some list somewhere that's keeping track of <laughs> everybody who has said something, everyone who has said nothing. And we don't want to be on the wrong list. Wait it out is all I can say. Just wait it out. Um, and certainly don't say anything if you don't know what you're talking about. Um, yeah. But, but the point about this idea of like, we're, that that a brand is a thing version of you and um is a bad way to be human right like i have studied what a good what what it means to be a good brand and what it means to be a good brand is to repeat yourself endlessly and have extreme message discipline so if you are right. a good brand as a human being you are incredibly boring 
Um, you do not evolve. Um, right. And you basically are just like a do- dog chasing its own tail for the rest of your You're life. You're just Nike. You say, just do it, just do it, just do it, just do it for over and ages. over again. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Change the celebrity, keep the slogan, you know, yep. um, that like it, good branding is all about, uh, is all about discipline. And that may work for Nike, but but it is um, really not what one should look for in our attempts to be human, which is to actually evolve and learn from our experiences and reserve the right to change. Um, so, you, you know, it's, it, 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 and it's interesting because it relates to AI because I think the more formulaic we are as people, as artists, as creators of any kind, the easier we are to make a doppelganger of us, um, mm. by AI, because AI studies formulas as so you got to keep the machines guessing, <laughs> be a bad brand, uh, break their own formula. But I also think it relates to the cruelty, you know, because, it, because a brand is not a human, a brand is a thing. And I think yes. that when we're all out there performing thing versions of ourselves, we start to forget that each other are humans. And then we start to throw very sharp things at one another. And then we're surprised when we hurt each other. Um, yes. Things don't bleed, right? You can just, you can hurl anything you want at Nike. They'll be fine. Do you feel that you've created a brand for yourself? Is that, did you say, oh, wait, hold on. I, I am a brand in a way that, that I'm no longer comfortable with as you were looking into this? Yeah. I mean, this was a question that came up for me pretty early because my first book, I got really, really fortunate with my first book. and. um no logo became a brand in the world. And it was very awkward because it was this anti-branding book that (laughs) suddenly like there's a no logo craft beer in England. There's, there was a whole line of Italian sundries, including some very good olive oil in Italy called no logo. And then there was like a restaurant in Geneva called no logo, which I went into, I was like, Oh wow, there's a no logo restaurant. And I went in and I introduced myself to the owner who ran away. He was so panicked that I was going to sue him or something that I had decided not to trademark it because that I thought that that compromised my ethics. Anyway, yeah, I, I mean, was like in my twenties, I could have gotten so rich. <laughs> well, yeah, it became it became a meme. No logo. It was yeah. everywhere. Yeah. So I, you know, I was confronted with this tension early on of like, okay, so even if I didn't want to be a brand, but I did sort of want to be a brand. And then I just realized it got way beyond my control. So I just decided to try to become a bad brand. And then the, the, the next, for me, what that meant was not writing about marketing for another 20 years. Um, so I, mm. you know, my next books, my next books were um, really not sequels to No Logo, um, The Shock Doctrine, and This Changes Everything. They were, you know, I just, because I thought to be a good researcher, to be a good investigative journalist, I have to follow my, I have to follow the research and not just chase my tail. And it was very clear to me that some writers just write the same book over and over again and slightly change the title. I mean, they're franchises. It's very popular. But to me, it was never really an option because I don't have the discipline to write about things that are not interesting to me. Like, like <laughs> I'm too lazy for that. You know, it has to interest me. I have to not understand it and have this desire to understand it to keep me working. And the thing about being a good branded author is you've already figured out the formula and then you just have to repeat it. But to me, writing is too hard to do that. You know, like, like, <laughs> like if I, if I'm not in a process of discovery, I will just watch television, you know? Yeah. Um, so it wasn't so much like that I was so pure. It was truly not an option for me. I mean, I guess I could have, now I could have hired an AI to write those books for me. Well, it seems like you also, you had an urge to resist it, which I I deal with that in my own work. I have my pet topics I return to again and again. Anyone who listens to this show knows what they are. I don't need to list them. Um, But then, you know, I have an urge to get away from that and do something new. But then the problem is, well, how do you sell that? Because people know you for the thing that you just did, <laughs> right? People know you for uh, that. And and so maybe they want more of it. I mean, even this book seems very different that, that it starts from such a place of personal history of like, hey, this weird thing happened to me compared yeah. to. Well, it, well yeah. I, I think any kind of success is always going to create its own its own trap, right? I mean, that's like Dylan. Um, you know, going electric, like people didn't want that from him. And, and then that's why he had to do it, you know? Um, so, uh, 
but with this book, I, it was similar in the sense that I couldn't bring myself to write a conventional nonfiction book again, because I had lost faith that argument changed minds. I, I, had, yeah. I had lost faith in the concept <laughs> um, <laughs> of, a, of a linear nonfiction argument-based book. Life was just getting too weird. And so I just thought, well, maybe I can write in a, in a, in a really different way. And you know, this book is much strange. It's weirder, but we live in weirder times and it uses my own double to, to go into a hall of mirrors. And I think that if I had tried to write about this, the weirdness of now, as if I was outside of it and just be like, I'm now going to make an argument about doppelgangers. No, no. Who would want to read that? Like it, the, what's fun is to read about a hurricane from inside its eye, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. And to explore. Yeah. What does this, what does this mean? What does this word mean? And to explore the hall of mirrors from inside the hall of mirrors, like to join you right there and to like and try to see get everything out. double, sure, try to get out, you know, yeah. um, but you got to start inside. <laughs> Do you have any belief that that project can change minds more than the linear argumentative uh, essay can? You know, I, I have found that like I've, I've, I have received so many really beautiful responses to this book of people who are grateful to have a kind of a map uh, um, of, you know, this dynamic with the mirror world where we're defining ourselves against one another um, and projecting everything we can't stand about ourselves onto them, you know, and then feeling pure because we are not them. And um, you know, I think, you know, even something, having a term like the mirror world, I have found like all a writer can do. I always see my role. It's it as helping people um, read the news better. I know this is a sort of a strange, like a job I've assigned, but to myself, but like, I don't, I don't have grand ambitions about what books can do on their own. But I, I do think that, that we can provide a little bit of orientation and some language, right? Like, like with the shock doctrine, I, I gave people some terms to describe what happens when we're in a state of shock and people try to take advantage of it. They try to push through a pre-existing wish list, right? And so whenever there's a disaster, I start hearing people say, well, it's, it's, a, it's the shock doctrine. It's, they're, they're doing disaster capitalism. And I think, okay, I helped people just get oriented a little more quickly. It's not nothing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like I, I, yeah. I, yeah, that's, that's all I can do. I think there are more, there's more that we can do that are not books um, that mostly involve organizing with one another in the real world. Yeah. Well, but to create a piece of language that can help people understand the world more quickly is a powerful thing to do. It's, as you say, it's maybe a small contribution in the, in the overall world of language, right. Or, or of our concepts, but it, it does give people a new verb, almost a new way of, of relating. Um, I want to return to that point of organizing because I obviously believe that strongly as well. But um, the online world, I'm curious how you feel about it, because um, you, there's a there's a just a little aside early in the book where you say something like, oh, I dismissed that as happening just online and not in the real world. Uh, you know, I was so naive back then. We were all naive enough to still say things like that. <laughs> um, and what's weird to me is. I lately have found myself saying, oh, that's just happening online more. You know, I've, I've been on the internet my entire life, literally since I was, you know, very young, I was obsessed with uh, the internet and with the computer world um, and like dwelled there. And now over the last couple of years, I've been like, I want to be on the computer as little as possible. Mm. I want to go look at a fucking tree. I want to go like, you know, be do comedy with people in a room. I want to meet people face to face. I, I like, I hate zoom meetings. I want to like, I, I will go 45 minutes to meet you in person. You know, um, uh, that that's just been my own, uh, my, my own orientation. And yet we do at the same time live in a world where you can't say, Oh, that's just Twitter mm -hmm. or you can't, I'm not sure. How do you feel about it? Um, I mean, I, I think like you, I am drawn to the real, um, to, to the embodied 
spaces. Um, you know, I live in incredible, in an incredibly beautiful part of the world in, 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 uh, coastal British Columbia, where there are many trees uh, to spend time with. Mm. And, 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 uh, you know, it, it is really literally grounding. And I don't think that I could do the kind of work that I do if I wasn't able to balance it out, um, with a hike in the forest, um, or some time on the water. Um, and since this book came out, like being in rooms full of other people has felt incredibly nourishing after so much time away. And I think this is how we keep each other sane in these, in, in these very vertiginous times. Uh, we are creatures of narrative, like I said, and we, we do that work together. You know, we make sense of the world together. And I don't think we can do it just in a Zoom meeting. I think it, there's something irreplaceable about doing it with one another. And um, so I, the way I try to use social media is as a way to get people off social media. So like, <laughs> you come on over, you know, uh, yeah, join the picket line and, um, yes. you know, and, and, and go to the rally and come to this meeting and come to this event and go to this concert and read this book, you know, um, and, you know, get wh wherever the work is deeper than whatever the little box Elon Musk has given us, you know, whatever that little box is or, or Mark Zuckerberg. So, um, and I see a lot of people using it in that way, right? To 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 bring us to more to 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 more deeper work that more fully represents us, whatever that is. And sometimes it'll be embodied with one another, and sometimes it'll be, um, you know, just offline. Um, so that's the way I tend to relate to it. I really like that. I, um, you know, I became well known over the past year for posting from the Writers Guild picket line quite often, um, and I was that was to me a very beneficial use of social media because people became connected to our struggle and they were able to offer support and, and just telling, you know, showing people what was happening was important. But I think it was really important that I was doing it from the picket line. Yes. You know, that I was like, here I am surrounded by other people and you can see what is happening here in the real world. I'm on the street in front of Netflix and here's hundreds of people around me or we're at, we're at a rally, et cetera. If I had been doing that from my bedroom, um, you know, if that, if that was where the struggle was taking place, all of us on the internet, it wouldn't, first of all, it wouldn't have won. Um, it wouldn't have been as powerful, but it, it also wouldn't have, it wouldn't have mattered. Like the, the connecting to, you know, the real life physical organizing mattered so much. Right. And when you're doing that face to face, you see how powerful it is to see someone who you're in, you know, struggle with and you see them face to face and you give them a hug and you say, you need some water and you like have a connection. It's just funny though, because so in all this stuff about return to work, uh, so many people make fun of bosses for going, Oh, the ineffable synergy of being in the office together. And people would make fun of those bosses for requiring people to go back to the office. And part of me would go, I do kind of believe it though, a little bit like <laughs> I, I do agree face to face, uh, has something irreplaceable. Uh, but Talking and about if nobody wants to go back to their workplaces. It probably means that their workplaces sucked and, you know, they need to change yeah. their workplace culture. And that's another argument for organizing. But I love that description because, you know, all of these ways, like, like ways of building doubles of ourselves, right? Like whether we're optimized, we're, 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 we're perfecting our brand or we're, op you know, I talk about the, the, the optimized body as being a kind of doubling, right? Like the idealized form. And this is, you know, um, part of what pushed a lot of people over the edge during COVID was this idea that they had a strong body, a strong immune system. So they didn't need to worry about other people. And they didn't, you know, they didn't have to think about being in this enmeshed, you know, world of other people. Mm. Um, or they see their kids as their little mini me's, their little doppelgangers, but all of it is about the self as opposed to building collective power. And, you know, when, when, when we are trying to, to face huge collective problems as individuals, that's when we feel most powerless, right? And we feel ashamed, you know, because we can't seem to make ends meet despite the fact that we're working so hard or we're carrying this debt, you know, or we have this terrible boss. And the, the power of the demonstration, you know, and, and this is really where the book ends, quoting my friend Kianga Yamada-Taylor, who, who teaches history at Princeton, and um, also quoting the late great John Berger about the power of the demonstration is not just that you 
demonstrate to those in power at Netflix or wherever that there's a lot of you. It's that you demonstrate to one another that you are not alone, that you yeah. are, that, that what felt individual, like an individual crisis for you, because you couldn't pay the bills, is actually a collective crisis. It's actually a crisis for your boss when, all, when everybody gets together and withholds their labor or withholds their rent, you know, in, in, in a, in, in a, in a uh, tenant's union um, or withholds their debt payments in a debtor's union. So that's, that's why we need to get over ourselves, right? That, that is why, mm. why I'm grateful to my doppelganger because I think I care, like all of us, I cared too much about my own image. Like who the hell cares, you know? So people confuse me with somebody else. And that's that, I take that as a message to just get over myself and reach towards other people, build collective power. Oh, I love that. Um, it makes me think of this thought that I've had recurringly over the past couple of years, which is that when you're face to face with other people, they uh, see you in a way that you can't control. I think about this as a stand-up comedian who I perform live in front of other people and I watch other stand-up comedians. And when I think about how the audience regards you on stage, they're looking right at you. You're, you're exposed in front of them. You can try to put up whatever front you want. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people can put up a front quite well. Mm -hmm. um, but the audience's gaze always pierces to something that you don't control. You know, that I, I feel that people are able to, you know, when we're present for each other, yeah. we see each other in this sort of like deeper, uncontrollable way. Um, and maybe that's why it's a relief to be in person because we, you know, on, on the internet, it's all artifice, right? It's all, all anybody sees is what I control. Yeah. And it's actually helpful to be in a situation where I'm not totally in control. And uh, then I get, I get seen as a person, which is satisfying and sort of lumpy and weird, yeah. even though it's, I don't have control over it. It's a little scary, but yeah. it is ultimately so much more. There's more fucking going on there. Well, and, well, they will also do things you can't control, right? Like, yes. And that's, <laughs> that's a whole other thing, <laughs> but it is, it's it. I mean, this is the thing about, I think there's certain things about the, the tools of technology that are habit forming, you know, that when you, can mute somebody, you know, and just, or just block, like, you, like th there's something right. habit forming about the idea that you can just make inconvenient people disappear. Um, <laughs> which look, I'm a muter. I admit it. Like when someone's putting me in a bad mood, I'll mute them. I don't block. It's, I don't it's like so much give them the satisfaction. <laughs> you can't block, but it's so fun to follow someone and then mute them and be like, they don't know that they're muted. They still think I follow them. They're, you like, they're feel still like yelling at me and they think I hear them. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, but it is, it's a sick thing yeah. <laughs> to take pleasure in. No, because when you are in a room with other people, you realize that you can't turn them off. Like they are going to be, yes. they're all fully human selves. Right. Um, and this is why we need gun control. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit more charged. <laughs> I love we're having this very like airy philosophical argument about seeing each other and control and identity and persona. And you're like, and that's my policy argument for an assault weapons ban. Well, because I want to have a debate. I just don't want it to end that way. You know what I mean? <laughs> I love it so much. Uh, and this, again, it connects to so many things that, that I've been thinking about who I am and how I move through the world and what I do. Um, as soon as I get too high and I start wigging out about my online identity and stuff. And, and this is, this is helping you giving me a, a framework to think about it, which I think is your, is your goal. Um, so do you, uh, you know, have any to bring us in for a landing here, you know, concrete, like, uh, uh, steps that you take away from this, uh, you know, journey that you went on with, uh, Ms. Wolf and, um, uh, everything that you, that you learned about the mirror world. Like how do we, especially yeah. you know, if we talk about those people who are really trapped within it yeah. and we want to like connect back to them. Cause the, I have so many friends who've experienced the pain of that. I have, I have friends who've lost parents to QAnon, yes. um, who they can't speak to anymore. And to that mirror world, what, what do we do? Well, so all the, all the research shows that if somebody is going to get out of that mirror world, you know, if they're going to get away from Steve Bannon or whoever it is that they, that they, that they have adopted as a guru, um, 
it's going to be somebody who they have a pre-existing relationship with who will mm. have reached them. And and like I said, you know, this this world is full of grifters. They're getting fleeced all the time. The stories are changing all the time. They probably have questions. Some people are too far gone, but there may they there there may well be people who are looking for an off ramp. And it's not going to be my book that's going to get them. It's going to be a friend from high school who maybe read my book right. Um, right. And, and had some ideas for how to extend a bridge and find some common ground. Like I said, maybe may, I don't like Bill Gates. I don't think he's in, I don't think he's implanting us with chips, you know, but <laughs> yeah, I, I just think he's a fucking <laughs> asshole who, who made his billions in a horrible way and then is bad to people and created a propaganda machine about how great he is, where he made his own Netflix documentary about how he's the smartest guy in the world. And, uh, exactly. there like, are so many reasons to hate Bill Gates without making yeah. anything up, you know? So I, just, he's, he's, he's mean to his wife. Like, <laughs> you know, he's like, he's an asshole husband, isn't he? Hangs around with Jeffrey Epstein, if I recall. So Correct. I, I think that, um, so I think, I, I do think that it is worth extending those bridges, but I don't think we're going to solve this one uncle at a time. Um, mm. And I do think, you know, if you, if you, if you listen to how these right-wing um, populists are gaining ground, it's by mixing and matching some true things with some very dangerous and untrue things like great replacement theory and the immigrants are coming to replace you and, um, you know, and teachers are turning your kids trans, right? So, you know, they'll take something like, you know, a fear of surveillance um, or rightful suspicion of big pharma and they'll mix and match it, you know, um, with, with this much more nefarious agenda. So, what we can do is we can take away the true things that they're, that they're like, we can take them back um, and put them to work in a real progressive project. So, you know, I don't think we fight conspiracy culture by just like deplatforming and content moderation. I and mean, I'm not saying that there's no role for that, but you know, I think that Sean Fain, the head of the UAW, has done more to fight conspiracy culture just by yes. being out there in his Eat the Rich t-shirt and saying, you know, record profits should mean record contracts and like being an actual left populist with a plan, an organizing plan for how to actually meet people's needs. Because what conspiracy culture is, is a distraction machine. It takes people's anger at elites, feeling that that they're being screwed over. And it, 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 it pivots it towards scapegoats, right? So the best yeah. way to fight it actually is to give people a real economic project that's going to meet their needs. So they are less likely to fall for these counterfeit grifters. Absolutely right. To, to give the, say, Hey, the feeling that you have is real. Yeah. There needs to be a fight, but to actually wage the right fight and don't just pay it lip service, but organize marshal the power. I mean, Sean Fain has yes. power in the UAW and he is winning and people can, Hey, don't you feel like you're getting screwed? Everybody says, yes, let's fucking do something about it rather than selling you bullshit coins. <laughs> Fuck Joe Biden coins. And he's going after the bosses and the, and that is what they fear most. I mean, the reason there's a reason why some of the richest people on this planet love a good conspiracy theory. Like why yes. is Elon Musk the single, you know, greatest vector of misinformation right now? He like, if you were the richest man on the planet on a good day, you would want people distracted too, you know, you, you would want people not looking at systems of economic consolidation, um, that allowed you to get as rich as you are. You you would want them talking about the Jews and the CCP and, you know, Anthony Fauci and the rest of it. It's a distraction machine and it serves elites, even though they claim to be fighting elites like Rupert Murdoch. Right. Um, so we just need to understand this. We need to do a little mapping. That's all. Get ordered. We need to understand it. And then we need to organize to show the alternative path. And then we need to win, which we are starting to do, I think. I think so, too. I think so, too. And I want to thank you for all of your organizing in real world action. Right. Because this is that's how that's how that's that's the best way we fight this sort of fake world is by doing the real world real work. That is such a beautiful conclusion to this conversation. Uh, Naomi, I'm so thrilled that you came on the show. I can't wait. I'm going to get this book on audiobook. I think is going to be, uh, for, for my next month of travel on the road. I can't wait to listen to it. Um, I, I hope folks check it out. If you want to pick up a copy, you can get it at our special bookshop, factuallypod.com slash books. Uh, Naomi, is there anywhere else that people can, can follow you, uh, or your work? Um, 
Okay, I guess I'm on. I mean, I can't answer that oh, question. God, you're, you're right. Like you're right. After, after an hour no. of talking about Twitter and stuff like that, you know what? How about this? I have a website, go- NaomiKlein.org, and you can, you know, find, follow my articles in The Guardian. And Great. Um, you can sign up for my newsletter, which is free. How's that? That sounds beautiful. And then maybe someone can see you in person and talk to you about organizing or something like that. They run into you in British Columbia. Yes. Um, Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here, Naomi. Well, my God, thank you so much again to Naomi Klein for coming on the show. I hope you loved that conversation as much as I did. If you want to pick up a copy of her book, you can get it once again at factuallypod.com slash books. That's factuallypod.com slash books. And when you do, you'll be supporting not just this show, but your local bookstore as well. Uh, if you want to support this show, you can do so at patreon.com slash Adam Conover. Five bucks a month gets you every episode of the show ad free for 15 bucks a month. I will thank you in the credits of the show and in all of my video monologues this week. I want to thank Richard McVeigh, Celine Dragon, Blamo, Michael Frasco, Lee Dotson, Emily Wilson, Secto Abin, and God King Engineer of Beaverkind. Really like that username, God King Engineer of Beaverkind. Would love to know what that means. Send me a message on Patreon. You can message me on Patreon as well if you feel like it. I want to thank my producers, Tony Wilson and Sam Roudman, everybody here at HeadGum for making the show possible. Uh, You can find my tickets and tour dates at adamconover.net. Once again, I'm going to New York, Chicago, Nashville, D.C., a bunch of other cities as well, Boston, Portland, Maine, a bunch of places. Head to adamconover.net to get those tickets. Hope to see you there and see you next week on Factually. That was a HeadGum podcast.